I'm Jeff Cohen. Thomas Soblowski, a secular Jew, became Tuvia Soblowski, an observant Jew, through an amazing journey that he believes was clearly guided by Hashem's hand. He's here today to share that saga, including the obstacles he overcame to make sure his father received a proper Jewish burial. Thomas, or should I say Tuvia, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you, Jeff, and very happy to be here with you. All right, so do you want to be Thomas or Tuvia during the interview? Now I've called you both names. Tuvia, we left Thomas behind. Okay, so I know that the story begins as Thomas, so let's begin there, even though your name is Tuvia, and give us a sense of where you were born and raised. I was born, raised, and educated in Philadelphia. I grew up as an ultra-secular Jewish man. I knew I was Jewish, but we didn't really do anything. There was no Yiddishkeit in my upbringing, and my parents, at five years old, sent me to a very well-known, very famous old Quaker Christian prep school called William Penn Charter, which was founded in 1689. It was there that I started to you know, be called names, messing up my name, calling me different names. A lot of it, people didn't know, but it was because I was Jewish. So from a very young age, I was exposed to anti-Semitism, being one Jew among many goyim, and uh, it's just interesting how I got sent there. And when you say it was a Christian Quaker school, were there actually like religious teachings in the school or was more or less a secular education? It was a secular education, but every once a week we had Quaker meeting, which was about 45 minutes when the entire school would get together in the auditorium. And in that meeting, it was really to be silent, to really think and contemplate what was going on. Interesting. And when you say you were ultra secular and your family wasn't doing too much, do you mean you weren't even doing like Hanukkah gifts or having some matzah at Passover time, or you did some of the basics? We did some of the basics, but I had never had Shabbos. I didn't have a proper bris when I was born. I was circumcised in the hospital. That's what happened in Philadelphia with many of the young boys. One of the reasons is the reform movement started in Philadelphia around the Civil War. So Philadelphia became a, a big bastion for secular Jews and reform Jews and conservative Jews. Okay, but was there a synagogue nearby that you went to at any point, maybe on the high holidays, or you didn't go at all? It was called Rosh Shalom, which was also one of the oldest synagogues in the United States. Started on Broad Street in downtown Philadelphia. We were in a branch out in Cheltenham, Elkins Park, Melrose Park, one of the suburbs. So we would go there occasionally. We would drive there. And uh, I remember once upon there was a big sukkah there, uh, but there was no real formal education. Did you know what a sukkah was? Like when I was growing up, you know, secular, just like you, I don't think I would have recognized or realized that that was part of the annual cycle for a Jew, that there'd be a sukkah or would even know what it is if I saw one. Right. I, I didn't really know what it was. All I know there was a big, it was a sukkah. It was big. Okay. And so you talked about in school being one of a few Jews and that would lead to anti-Semitism. Can you think about like a particular story or like some memory that you have of, of dealing with that? Sure. One that was very clear was in seventh grade. In fifth grade, I started playing football and getting tougher because I was in a lot of fights. In seventh grade, one of the kids in my class, he wrote on the chalkboard a uh, very derogatory thing about a guy running for President McGovern, and he called him a, a very negative four-letter word, and then he wrote on the same chalkboard my name with the same word. So I got very upset. I flew across the room, and I started beating the guy up. And that was the end of that. Nothing happened. I didn't get in trouble. He didn't get in trouble. Two years later, the same guy took me to his country club. And I decided in seventh grade to stop playing football. Why? Because I got knocked out. Although I was a tough guy, first play of the year, 
running down the field, kickoff, and this big six-foot guy knocks me out cold. And my mom used to come to all my games and support me, but she was late for that one. So when she showed up, her friends said, you missed all the action. You missed Tommy. He was, he, and what happened? He goes, he got knocked out. So my mom told me, I kept telling you, football is not a Jewish sport. Think of something else. So I started playing tennis. I got very good at tennis very quickly. In ninth grade, the same kid took me to his country club, Huntington Valley Country Club, which was near my parents' country club in Huntington Valley, Pennsylvania. Not a place where Jewish people were supposed to go, let alone other ethnic groups, minorities, uh, maybe to work there, uh, but certainly not to play. So he took me onto a squash court, which I had never seen before, and I liked it a lot. And I came home and told my parents I was playing squash today. They had no idea what I was talking about, but I fell in love with the, the sport. Also, my school, it turned out, had a great squash team. We had five squash courts in the Philadelphia area. There was the Interact Squash League, of which I started competing in. And I started seeing that this was a very waspy sport, not many Jews. And I used this as my way to really inspire me to, to beat the wasps at their own game. So I got very good. By 11th grade, I was number one in our school. By 12th grade, I started playing in national tournaments. I was ranked number 10 in the country for the juniors and I started applying to colleges also. And what I found that all the top Ivy League schools and Trinity Tufts all had squash teams. So I started contacting the coaches at these various schools at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Penn, and letting them know I'm going to be playing squash and I'm interested in playing for your team. So on many weekends, I would drive to these schools. I'd meet the coaches, spend time with the, the players. And fast forward, I ended up going to the University of Pennsylvania Freshman year, I played number three on the team. We were number two in the country against Princeton. I won all my matches except for the Princeton match. And, uh, but what happened was there were many fraternities at Penn, two Jewish ones, which I wasn't interested in, but I was getting rushed, you know, being introduced to four. St. Elmo's, the Castle, Zeta Psi, and where I ended up joining, which was St. Elmo's, and uh, St. A's. So here I was, a squash anomaly, a Jewish guy playing squash and going deeper and deeper into a Goyesha world. So there's one thing that doesn't add up from your story. How did this kid who you repeatedly punched in the face in the seventh grade end up inviting you to this country club like two years later? Had he forgiven you or, or the relationship had moved on? Like, why were you getting that invitation? Relationship was moving on and I hung out with these guys. These are the people I hung out with. I'd go and spend weekends at their houses and... You know, it was a small class, so you, you, know, you got along and didn't get along with everybody. So you and I have in common that we both went to Penn, and I can remember walking down Locust Walk for those who know the area and know the main part of campus for the University of Pennsylvania. And there was a day where you could meet all the different fraternities. They each had a table along the walk, and you could get to know some of the brothers who were, who were members. And even though I was completely secular at the time, and granted I wasn't playing squash, these fraternities that you just mentioned... I could tell like right away, I think because I was Jewish and just the way they carried themselves that it wasn't the right fit for me. But did you feel any of that or was squash enough to be like, I'm going to be accepted among these guys? I was never really accepted. Really? I was always an outsider. Um, and these were very prominent families. One of them, I just looked up, Jacob Wallaberg, who's now like the chairman of every major company in Sweden. He was one of the guys... We were friends, but there was no relationship afterwards. Henry Cabot Lodge's grandsons were in this fraternity. It was really, I was, I was never really an insider. I was really an outsider. 
Right. That was the feeling among my friends when we looked at those fraternities, that those were a lot of legacy families that had been there for many generations and it just didn't seem like the right fit. But it sounds like squash got you in the door, but it wasn't enough to make you really like part of the club. But your sports skills got you at least into the fraternity. Yes. Okay. So what role is Judaism now playing through the college years? Not a whole lot. You know, I'd maybe date some Jewish girls, but my girlfriend in college for many years, for seven years, was not a Jewish girl. She was a Catholic girl from the Bronx. Was there any inkling within you of, okay, I can date Jewish or non-Jewish, but if I start thinking about marriage, like Jewish would be something that would matter? Because like for me, even though I wasn't raised with religion, for some reason it was in my head that ultimately if I get married, this person's going to be Jewish, like it was important to me. Were you thinking that way at that time of your life? I wasn't. And the reason I didn't marry her was when I did meet her family up in the Bronx. I just, I can't marry into this. I loved her, but... It just was not going to happen. What's the this? What is it that you saw? It just was too non-Jewish. So that relationship really ended. It wasn't going to end up in marriage. All right. So now take us towards the end of the college years. I would think you're starting to formulate what you want to do career-wise. So like, what were you majoring and what were you working towards? And what was that first job out of school? I was majoring in, I struggled the first year because I was coming from an all-boys school to a co-ed school. I was playing squash all the time. I took really good courses, but they were over my head. Um, they were all like more advanced courses. Uh, so I struggled that first year, had to really kind of find myself and stay in. Um, but I ended up going into focusing on international relations as my major and concentrating on business. And that was a great major. Most people said that's just like a jock major or you know, gut major, <laughs> but now it's an important major. So I've been using that major ever since. And my college thesis was called an International Real Estate Venture, which was to go around the world, contacting foreign companies and investors to invest in the US property markets. So that's actually what I did. Um, I was working my last year in college because I messed up my knees. I had, uh, wasn't able to play squash my last year. So I started working during the summer for an old line, Waspy Real Estate Company. They hired me to start doing research, and my first day was to go to an industrial park with uh, the person I was working with in southern New Jersey. And when I showed up, I was wearing my preppy clothes. I was wearing blue blazer, yellow pants, loafers, no socks, white shirt. And he said, what are you doing showing up for work like this? So uh, that changed. But that was, again, it was just going into a deeper world of, of not much Jews, but... Uh, you know, dealing with a lot of waspy people. So I ended up taking a trip right when I graduated after working with this company for a little while, representing them to go around the world. I bought a Pan Am ticket for $1,000 to go around the world for 80 days. Wow. So the, the group that I worked with in Philadelphia was a very good company, and they had 18 other groups around the country that they aligned with so that they can compete with Cushman Wakefield and Coldwell Banker and Grubb Ellis on a national basis. So not only when I left did I represent that group, I represented the whole office network. So on my trip out, I went and visited many of the offices from Florida to Boston, New York, Texas, California, and then I left for Japan. I landed in Japan and I fell in love with Japan. So instead of going, I ended up staying there for most of my trip for about 60 days. And I was basically cold calling major Japanese companies to talk to them about investing in the United States property markets. And back in 1981, I'd still not made my first real estate deal. I had my license, but these people didn't know much about US real estate. So I knew as much as them, if not more. 
And that really became my career during the 1980s, working with foreign investors, especially the Japanese and, and Koreans, um, to invest in the U.S. property markets. So I have a good sense of what's going on in your 20s career-wise. You did a great job painting that picture. Now bring into that what's going on Judaism-wise and dating-wise at this time period of your life. Um, at that point, I still was going out with the same girl. We broke up you know, a couple years out of college. I dated non-Jewish girls, Jewish girls. At one point, I was seriously going out with a Jewish girl my mom wanted me to marry, but that didn't end up happening. Then I fell back into just, again, going out with, I fell in love with Asia. I fell in love with the culture. So I ended up, I guess, in the late 1980s, going out with a lady. We went out for a couple years. I ended up leaving. We broke up. I moved, picked up and moved to Singapore in around 1990. 1991. I was living a life in Asia, and then one of my friends, good friends who I was in New York with, came out to visit me. He was from Puerto Rico, and he said, what are you doing out here? Why don't you come back? So I ended up coming back and proposing to the lady I'd been going out with for several years, and we ended up getting married in December 7th of 1991. So Wait, what was what was her background culturally, religiously? Her background was she was born Korea, came to America when she was 12 years old, and uh, she grew up as a, as a Korean-American here in New York. Okay, so at the time the relationship got serious and went towards marriage, were there discussions about the fact that you were of two different religions and if you were to start a family, what that might look like? Yes, and she was actually prepared to convert to become Jewish. So we found a rabbi, she was in men's fashion, who was wearing Armani suits, so she was very comfortable with this reform rabbi. And we ended up going for Rosh Hashanah on the Upper West Side to High Holy Days. And we went to a big shul, big synagogue. And they said, unless you're a member and have tickets, you're not allowed to come in. They said, but around the corner, there's another synagogue. Maybe you go into that one. So we went from a Reformed temple to an Orthodox temple up on Lincoln Square, I believe it was, Rabbi Buckwold. So I walk in there in separation. I'd never been like that. Men on one side, women on the other side. And so I see this, my former wife, she's standing with all these women. You see this one Korean face standing <laughs> out. I'm on the other side. And after that, I say, I'm not interested in any of this. You don't have to convert. You know, if they're going to shut us out, I'm not interested. So we went ahead and we got married. We were married by a judge in, in New York State who was also Jewish, but there was no Yiddishkeit or anything involved with that wedding. It's interesting how you're describing your first experience really with Orthodox Judaism because I work with a lot of people who deal in Kirov, and they, and they mention how you have to show the story of Orthodox Judaism in the right order. And you're seeing this at a time when you're really not ready to experience what it means to separate men and women. And I had the same struggle with my mom as I was becoming religious. She said, why, why can't the family just sit together? I just don't get it. And it was like a real sticking point for her. But that wasn't the first thing I was exposed to when I became observant. And it seems like that was your very first time you ever had any feelings about what it meant to be Orthodox, I'm not surprised you had like a negative reaction to it. It was not negative about the Orthodoxy. It was negative about the Reform Temple that said you can't come in here. That was the negative. I wasn't. I wasn't negative about the Orthodox. I was just surprised where I ended up. Um, but it still didn't have an impact. I stepped kept going deeper and deeper away from Judaism. Okay, I thought you were saying the the way you sat in that Orthodox shul and you see your wife like separated among the sea of people that maybe she's not comfortable with gave you this feeling of what am I doing here? Uh, that was that was part of it also. So it was a double whammy, double whammy. 
All right. So then what happens as the marriage progresses? Like, where do you settle down? And do you, do you start a family together? Like, what comes next? We were married for almost 12 years. We struggled to have children, but we had a miracle baby, my daughter Sabrina, who's now 24. Shortly after we had her, that's when the problems happened with the, the marriage, and we ended up getting divorced maybe two or three years after she was born. So we got divorced in 2004. Okay, so as you're coming out of that marriage, is that giving you a moment to think about if I'm going to get back into dating and potentially meet somebody else? Do they need to be of the same religion? Is this important to me now? How much did this play into why this relationship might not have worked? Not really. But one thing was my mom had always asked me to marry a Jewish girl. So I kept that in mind. And really with, with the next thing that happened was over the next four years, I just went back to doing whatever I was doing again. No changes were made, no upgrades. So when my mom passed away in May of 2008, I missed her a lot. She was really the closest person for me on the earth. And I decided to take some personal development courses. So I started with Landmark, Tony Robbins. And when I went to the Landmark introduction, when I got there, I saw there were a lot of Jewish girls in the room. So I said, for my mom's sake, I'm going to look for the prettiest Jewish girl in the room and ask her out on a date. <laughs> so I met this lady. She was very nice, very pretty. And we're talking. I said, would you like to go out on a date? She goes, sure. I said, great. What would you like to do? She said, I'd like to go to a Torah class. I said, great. How do we do that? <laughs> Where do I meet you? <laughs> So I met her on the Upper East Side, a big synagogue I walked into on East 85th between Park and Lexington. And this lady approaches me and she said, are you here for tonight's Torah class? I said, I think so. She says, great. Are you uh, single? I said, yes. She goes, are you Jewish? I said, yes. She goes, awesome. I'm the assistant matchmaker and I have a lot of girls here tonight. Can I introduce you? I said, well, I'm actually uh, on a date tonight, but if that doesn't work out, I'll let you know. So I'm sitting there with my date and we're watching, listening to this person speak, and there were a lot of people in the room, and they were talking about anti-Semitism and connecting it to that week's Parsha. I knew about the anti-Semitism, but I didn't know anything about the Parsha. And within about 10 minutes, a light bulb went off in my head. And after the class, I went and the person had written many books, so I decided to buy the first book they had written and asked them to autograph it for my daughter. It was gonna be around her birthday. It was called The Jewish Soul on Fire. And that person that was speaking was Rebetzin Youngrace. So I ended up meeting Rebetzin. She autographed the book for my daughter. And later that week, I had to take a business trip to San Diego. So I'm flying from JFK to San Diego, and I'm reading the book, and it's fascinating. And I get a tap on the back from the guy sitting behind me. And he said, why are you reading that book? So I start explaining. And the next thing I know, he's a young Habad couple, and they're putting the tefillin on my arm. I'd never had to film on, didn't even know what the film was. So flying from JFK to San Diego was my first experience with putting on to fill in. I was actually traveling with another couple. He's Jewish, his wife's not Jewish. So I sent this guy up to the front of the plane to go find him and put it on him also. <laughs> you know what I love about this story? Up until this point, as we've been talking, and I would think our, our listeners would be thinking, I don't see how this guy's going to become observant or even on the path to caring more about Judaism. And then there are these couple of things that start happening. You see this turning point in your life. So it's really fascinating that this class and this plane trip start to shift the trajectory of, I think, where your, where your journey is going to go. Yes. So I read the book, the whole book, and it really explained why 
I became who I was in America because my great-grandfather came from outside of Kiev from Ukraine back in the 1880s. They came to Philadelphia directly. They were asked to go to a town named Norristown to help start the Jewish community there. But there wasn't, I look at pictures, there aren't many, but there wasn't wearing yarmulke, certainly not wearing a strimal. The Yiddishkeit did not transcend from generation to generation. So by the time it got to me, both my parents were born in the United States, there was no Yiddishkeit. Okay, so you go on this trip and you have this experience with the tefillin, and what happens when you come back? There was a woman that you were starting to date who you brought to that class, and you have this matchmaker saying, I've got a list of people I could introduce you to. So how does the story progress from there? So um, I called her up, and I said, I'd like to go have another date and go back to the Rebbitzin again. She goes, well, I'm really busy. I said, well, if it's all right with you, I'd like to go see the Rebbitzin myself. She goes, sure, why not? So I went back again that week, and the Rebbitzin was amazing again. And after the class, there were probably 30, 40 people waiting to see her and get a brook and advice. So I said to the line, I'm just going to wave to her because I was a real New Yorker. I'm not waiting in line for hours. So she saw me and she signaled for me to come over. And she said, thank you for coming back and tell me what your name is again. I said, my name's Tommy. She goes, great. What's your Hebrew name? I said, I don't have one. She said, but are you Jewish? I said, yes. Your mother's Jewish? I said, yes. Your father's? Yes. So when you had your bris... That's when you were given your Hebrew name. She said, you did have a bris, didn't you? I said, I really don't remember back that far, but from what <laughs> I know, I was had a circumcision in Einstein Hospital on Broad Street in Philadelphia. That's what Jewish boys did there. So the Rebbitson said, well, we, we have a lot to talk about. So about half an hour later, I'm apologizing to all the people. You know, we had a very deep and meaningful conversation, and I started telling her about why my mom had passed away and and how she'd been cremated. And she looked at me, she was cremated, and she turned white. She goes, we don't do that. Jews don't cremate. She said, we have to get to work on you immediately. I'm going to introduce you to my son, Rabbi Osher Young-Rice, and I'd like you to start learning Hummish with him. And tell him that you need to get to fillin and do the learning, that you need to have a proper bris. And at that bris, when you do it, tell him, I think your name should be Tuvia. Okay, great. So I start learning. I'm coming to her classes on Monday and Wednesday. I'm going to learn with Rabbi Osher one or two nights a week. So several nights a week, I'm now engaged in learning. And this is in September, October. And Rabbi Osher keeps asking me to come to his yeshiva in Brooklyn so we can get the tefillin and do all this. So finally, one January morning, I call him up. and I said, it's Sunday morning in January. It's about 15 degrees out, beautiful day. I said, Rabbi Yosh, I'm ready to come see you at your yeshiva. So I take a train out to Brooklyn. I'd spent more time flying to California than going to Brooklyn, so I didn't know much about Brooklyn. And here I walk, and I see this big building, several buildings, and that's the yeshiva. So I walk in, I said, Rabbi Yosh, you know, I knew you guys were doing very well. You have a <laughs> building on the Upper West Side, but this is really extraordinary. Because no, this is where I've been learning for my whole life. We don't own these buildings. I'm, I'm, this is my kollel here. So we walk in and we start to learn. He takes me into this beautiful big shul. People are learning. And he starts introducing me to these older rabbis. And it literally felt like I was back in the 1800s in Russia or wherever, Ukraine. So after a little while, about an hour, the rabbi said, OK, it's time to go to Rabbi Pincus across the street to go get your tefillin. So we walk in, he introduces me to Rabbi Pincus. We're talking for a few minutes, and he's telling me a little bit about the tefillin. And in walks another rabbi, 
And Rabbi Osher Youngray says, Rabbi Pesach Kron, you're just the man we're looking for. He goes, why is that? He goes, because I want to introduce you to my friend Tommy, who needs to have a, a little bris meal done. He said, but you know, this is very unusual because I'm just here to check on my tefillin. I'm, I live in Queens. I usually don't come here to do this, but I'm here. I have my toolkit in my car, and I can go out and get it. Why don't you, Rabbi Osher, go get some wine and cake, and we'll, we'll do everything right now. So he said, uh, Rabbi Pesach Kron, say, Rabbi Pincus, is there some place I can do this? He goes, sure, take my office in the back of the, the, the uh, tefillin store. So the next thing I know, I'm sitting in the back of the tefillin store with Rabbi uh, Pesach Kron, who's doing what he has to do for my brismila. And then afterwards, I didn't know what to give him. So I said, do you like chocolate? He goes, well, yeah, I love chocolate. I said, here, I have some amazing chocolate. Try some of these chocolate. So then we came out, and uh, Rabbi Paisak Kron said, get everybody in the store together, and we're going to start celebrating that Thomas is now Tuvia. So we have a big celebration, and I get the name Tuvia. He starts showing me the tefillin, and Rabbi Osher calls up the Rebetzin and says, you're not going to believe what's going on here. She goes, what's going on? She goes, Tommy came out. He's with me. Rabbi Pesach Kron just gave him his bris, gave him his Hebrew name, and he's getting his tefillin. And his mother said, that's amazing, but what Parsha is this? He says, it's Parsha Shemos. She said, and who was born Parsha Shemos? Moshe Rabbeinu. And what was the name that his mother gave him? Tuvia. So we're all just pretty amazed by all this. And what was also interesting is, is by that time I was only dating Jewish girls, and the, the girl I was dating was uh, introduced by the Rebetzin, who was her, one of her assistants. And what was Moshe Rabbeinu's wife's name? Sapura. And what was the name of the girl I was dating? Sapura. So I'm thinking, boy, this is really powerful. Here <laughs> I am getting my bris to fill in Hebrew name, and they even introduced me to my future wife. Okay, so we have to slow down just for a second because this is a lot of progress in one night. Is this making you feel more engaged in Judaism, more considering becoming more observant than you are, obviously, or is any of this scaring you? Like, why is this all happening so fast so soon? I was loving the whole process. It just felt really, really natural. But the family was really not very interested in, in what was going on. They thought I kind of was falling off the ledge and going into another world. Yeah, that's fairly common that there's this like tension that develops with the secular family when one member starts to become more observant and starts taking these steps. So you said that like, they weren't interested. Are there conversations about what this is going to mean for, for your family unit? Yeah, so I used to go down to Philadelphia or Washington for Thanksgiving, and I'd start talking about this, and, and they weren't very interested. So I, I wasn't making much progress. But the, the area that I was really focused on with the Rebetzin was my father wanted to be cremated also. So my mother and father had made a pack that they were both going to be cremated. So here it was, my mother was cremated, and I'm, I'm learning now that we don't cremate. So I'm starting to address that subject, and I'd ask some rabbis about it. And I was finally introduced to Rabbi Zon from the National Hebrew Kaddisha Association, who became a real advisor regarding this and, and how to talk to people, talk to my father, talk to my sisters about why it's important to be buried instead of cremated. Okay, and I know this is like a fundamental story for you, and I even mentioned it in the intro. I just want to ask you one more thing before we get to the details of what happened as you tried to switch a cremation to a burial. What happened with Sephora? Like, you're now starting on this accelerated path to become observant. It sounds like she was raised observant from the way you're describing it. The, uh, the woman who brought me to the Rebetzin 
That was Donna. Okay. That didn't go too far. And then I started being introduced to Jewish women because the Rebbitzin basically said, you have to get married. You have to have children. Big mitzvah. So I stopped doing what I was doing as far as dating any, you know, all types of people and just started dating Jewish girls. Um, I was being introduced by the Rebbitzin and other people. And what I made a decision was, and this was for about at least two, two and a half years, every Shabbos and every Yuntav, I would go someplace and not be in my apartment by myself and be in a kosher environment. So that started really with the Young Rices out in Far Rockaway. And then there's a gentleman named Steve Eisenberg who started introducing me to people on the Upper West Side. I started going to families for Shabbos, and that was really a turning point because I loved seeing the family get together, the children, maybe the grandparents, and I was meeting great people, and I would let them know that I'm interested in getting remarried. So basically, Steve Eisenberg started sending me outside of Manhattan. The first time was to Muncie to Rabbi Benzie and Klatsko, which was amazing, who started Shabbat.com. And when I got there, I walk in, and his wife just had a baby, and she said, do you like children? I said, sure, I love children. She goes, great, here, take care of this one for a little while. But that was amazing. He has a Shabbos table that fits at least 80 people or more. So that was the first Shabbos outside of Manhattan. I come back, I report to Steve, and he said, that's amazing. He goes, I'm sending you away next Shabbos. So he sent me the next Shabbos to Rabbi Eli Gewurz from Partners in Torah. So I'm letting people know I want to get married. And uh, then Steve introduced me to a program in Lakewood called Lakewood Fellowship Program. And that was a summer program to go down to Lakewood to learn for a week. And you would stay with different families. And that was another major turning point, going down to Lakewood. And in that process, you know, I'm letting people know I want to get married. So by the end of the day, I started on J-Date, which was not a good place to be. And I started moving to from websites. So I called it the Observant Golden Triangle from Far Rockway in the Five Towns to Muncie to New Square down to Lakewood was the Observant Golden Triangle. I lived in Manhattan. I was going to Brooklyn and different places. So many people were introducing me to ladies. And then I started going on the from websites. And I actually met my wife, Rachel Shavaruckle, on Saw You at Sinai. And they probably sent at least 200 introductions and uh, that's how I met the lady who I married, who I'm married to right now. And what was her religious upbringing compared to yours? She grew up uh, in Borough Park and comes from a very Hasidic background. So what was that discussion like in terms of, you know, someone like her could, could easily have thought, I want to marry someone who was also raised this way, who knows everything, but you're earlier in your journey, and what is it going to be like to bring the two of you together? That took some work. A lot of things had to change. I had to upgrade what I was doing. And once I met her, it was like I was on a rocket ship. And then it became turbocharged. <laughs> it's been uh, really a, a very interesting and amazing relationship. And I understand there's also an interesting story about your name, Tuvia, that came to light at your wedding. Now that you mentioned this relationship is working out and you're going to be together. Yes. So uh, at the wedding, which my dad did come and my family came, we invited my oldest cousin from my father's oldest brother, who's probably a good 15, 20 years older than me, and my oldest sister said that she was observant or religious. So we invited my cousin Ellen and her husband Stephen, who I knew well, but I hadn't seen in decades, to come to the wedding. And my cousin Ellen kept going up to the rabbits and why is everybody calling Tommy Tuvia? I don't understand. And the rabbits said, well, that's the Hebrew name I gave him when I met him. I gave him the name 
Tuvia. She said, no one knows this, but Tuvia was our grandfather. So my cousin Tommy was named there for our grandfather, Thomas Sablowski, but his Hebrew name is Tuvia. And the Rebbitzin was blown away. <laughs> and that was the chatter for the rest of the wedding. And then you also, you know, you mentioned earlier in an interview about having a daughter from your first marriage. I don't know if you're comfortable talking about how she's reacting to this change in how you're carrying yourself religiously. We're still very close. She just moved to Brooklyn from Manhattan very recently. Um, she's very accepting of who I am and what I'm doing. She's not necessarily interested herself, but she definitely had a good exposure to uh, different families when I was getting started on the Upper West Side and coming for Shabbos. I think that one of the nicest ones we went to, I said to her after, I said, what do you think? How'd you like it? She goes, everything was really good except that soggy challah. <laughs> get filled a fish. <laughs> so now let's continue your story, which you were referencing just before you start to learn about the fact that your father also plans to be cremated like your mother was. So I start doing more and more work and talking to more and more people. And then I would go down and visit my sister and, and my father because he had... After my mom passed away, um, my sister decided to move him down to Bethesda, where she was, instead of Philadelphia. His eyesight wasn't good. He was starting to go blind. I'd go down for Thanksgiving with them, and they'd give me a hard time. And my wife would go with me, and she decided not to come anymore. So I'd go by myself, and it became confrontational. And then one afternoon, I was with my sister, and she said, if you bring the subject up anymore, we can't have you come to the house anymore. So I stopped talking about it. You stopped talking about it as in, at that, at that moment, you, you have made peace with the idea that, look, this was my father's wishes from a time period before I was religious, so this is probably just what's going to happen. Otherwise, I'm going to lose all of my sibling relationships. Exactly. So I gave it up. So fast forward, probably within a year of that, my sister called me and said, Dad passed away, and uh, everything's been taken care of. It was Friday morning. Don't worry about it. Everything's taken care of. So I called up Rabbi Zone. I said, Rabbi Zone, what should I do? He goes, you shouldn't do anything. If he's being cremated, you don't sit shiva. You don't rip your clothes. You don't say Kaddish. You do nothing. It doesn't, it's a non-event. So I said, okay. So later that night, um, a very close couple came by. He's a rabbi, local rabbi. His rabbit's in, and they asked what was going on. And, and the rabbit's in said in her quiet voice, you're not going to say Kaddish for your father? I said, nope. And she kept saying it. You're not going to say Kaddish for your father? And said it several times. I said, no. So the next morning, Sunday morning, I woke up and I said to my wife, why don't we ask my sister about the will? I'd like to see the will. She goes, that's a good idea. So I called my sister. Can you please send me the will? She goes, that would be great. I haven't seen it for several years either. And I said, why don't you send it to our other sister also? So she did that. So we get the will one Monday morning. I read the will, and there's nothing in there about cremation. I had been told three years before that they changed the will, that I would not be in the will to make any decisions. It would be about my two sisters and my older sister being the trustee. But I read it. There was nothing about cremation in there. But there was about 1984, when it was first written, about being buried, both of them being buried, and the estate would pay for the burial and everything being taken care of. So... I call up my wife and I read to her and, and she tested me like, okay, this sounds good, but I'll be, play the judge. 
I'm going to ask you questions. So she was preparing. If I had to go to court, how I would answer that. Then I called up Rabbi Zone. I told him, well, one, he did the same thing. And they asked me the questions, and I was ready to answer the question. He goes, okay, let's go find the body now. So here it is. This is Monday. He passed away on Friday. He was supposed to go to be donated his body for medical science and then be cremated. So Rabbi Zone contacted Rabbi David Kushner in Philadelphia, who started the two of them putting together a SWAT team to figure out how do we go locate this body to see what the story really is. So the head of the Hever Kedusha Association of Maryland was involved. Chief Rabbi of Maryland was involved. And I call up my sister to find out. So where did get sent? And uh, she's sleeping. So my brother-in-law, who I had spoken to, says she's asleep. So my wife said, well, call him back and ask him if he knows. So I called him back and I said, do you know where, what she did? She goes, I don't know what she did, but I think he was at such and such a place. So we Google it. I call the place, and the lady says, well, I, I'm sorry, but I can't give you any information. I said, well, I believe my father is there, and if you have him and you don't tell me, then I'm have to call the police, and we're going to be coming down to see you. Ten minutes later, the head of this, this facility calls me up and says, Mr. Sablowski, we have your father. Nothing's happened. And this afternoon, a group of rabbis stopped the whole process. I said, wow. So I called up Rabbi Zone. I said, what happened? She goes, oh, we forgot to call you. So Tuesday afternoon, they had found it and it all stopped. And I didn't find out until about 11 o'clock on Tuesday night. So now we're, we have to go ahead and make, do certain paperwork to change everything. And we have to have it done by Wednesday afternoon so the body can be taken care of and buried Friday morning. I leave. I'm on Belt Parkway. And it's, it's total traffic jam. I'm stuck. I'm only 10 minutes away, and I have to get all the way down to Maryland. And then my sister called, and she said, so what did you do? I said, what did I do about what? I said, what did you do about dad and the body? I said, I didn't do anything because well, a group of rabbis stopped the whole process. You stopped everything. You messed everything up. And silence, because I'm, I'm like, I don't know what to do. I'm stuck in traffic anyway. And she says, what, what do you want? I said, I want our father's body back and to bury him. And then there's silence on the phone. And then she finally said, you can have the body back, but you have to promise not to sue me or any family member. And we want the burial plots that mom and dad have in Roosevelt Cemetery. I said to her, great, no problem, you can have it. She goes, I'm going to send you agreement. And once you sign the agreement, I'll release and you can have the body. So we're waiting for that agreement. It comes in. I sign it. And uh, it's an awkward agreement. But my wife, who's an attorney, said, just sign it. I sign it. Normally, I wouldn't sign an agreement like that. And we send it back. And we need to know by 3 o'clock Wednesday afternoon that has to be signed. Otherwise, we can't move and have everything done and buried in Philadelphia by Friday morning before Shabbos. So we're waiting. And everybody's waiting for this agreement. And there's no agreement. It's 12 o'clock. It's 1 o'clock. It's 1.30. It's 2 o'clock. Different people are on the conference line. We're waiting with the facility, and, and the people are supposed to get the body. And finally, at 2.45, we don't know what to do. At 2.50, the facility said, we see an agreement. We see paper coming in, and that was the agreement. So Rabbi David Kushner put everything in place. He says, Tuvia, I'm going to drive from Philly. I'm going to get the body. You meet us at Roosevelt Cemetery at noon on Friday, and we're going to bury him. 
Friday morning, I called Rabbi David Kushner, and I said, how things are going to go? Tuvi, I have to apologize. There was an emergency. I was a family, and, and a child died you know, in the middle of the night. I've been up all night, so I can't go down to get the body. So I sent another team from Philadelphia to Maryland to get the body, just show up at the, at the cemetery at 12 o'clock. And don't worry, I'll have a minion there of at least 10 men. So... I'm driving down the uh, New Jersey Turnpike. I have two friends, one in, in Muncie, one in Teaneck, and they're just, we're, they're talking me down. They can't make it, and they keep saying, so how do you feel? How do you f-? I said, I'm just happy, joyful, and grateful that I'm going to be going and burying my dad. So here it is. It's a week later. We find the body. I show up at the cemetery, and three of my very good friends from Lakewood knew, and they came. And my wife's son, who's uh, now rabbi, he came down from Far Rockaway. So we had Arminia of the Ten, and plus the couple people that came. And my dad was buried that day. Wow. So now moving past this crazy story with your father, take me into the present. What's, what's your life like now? Where, where are you living? What's your family situation? How's everything going currently? I'm still very happy, joyful, and grateful. Very blessed to, to be an observant Jewish man. That Hashem basically took me out of the schmutz here in America, um, in, and the assimilation that's taking place. And it started at 50 years old. I'm now 63. Once my wife and I got married, her two children got married, so we have several grandchildren. My daughter's 24. She just moved from Manhattan over the past year to Brooklyn, so I get to see her more frequently than I did over several years when she was at Boston University. I lead a totally observant life. I was never a proud Jew. I was proud to be an American, but now I'm proud to be a proud American Jew. All right, so we like to close all of our interviews with what we call the lightning round. I'm going to ask you a few super fast questions. Are you ready? Okay, ready. Question number one, you talked about being a nationally ranked squash player back in the day. Can you still hold your own? No. (laughs) Not at all. I can't. My knees are not good. That goes with all my goyish life got buried. Next question, you talked about the book that really started your journey and how important that was to you, and you were reading it on the plane. Is there another book that you'd recommend to someone who's starting on their own path? Maybe they'd read the one you suggested, and there's a second one that would be good for them. The Rebbitson has many books. It's a great place to start, all her books. All right, and final question. From this whole ordeal of going through trying to get your father buried, what's an interesting fact or halacha or something you learned along the way about Jewish death and burial? In Jewish death and burial, that it's important to understand the Torah. We're given the Torah and to abide by it, not create our own rules. What's really happened in America is what the Greeks wanted to have happen. They wanted us to assimilate, and it's exactly what happened in America. And they say some 25 million Jewish souls have disappeared through assimilation. So what they wanted happened in America, and it's still happening, and we can help stop it. And what Haman wanted with Purim is still happening. So our generation is facing both people that want to destroy us and people that want to love us and make us assimilate. So it's very important that we come together and save as many people as we can now. Beautifully said. And Thomas, who became Tuvia, you are out of the lightning round, and I want to thank you for joining me on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you, Jeff. It's been a pleasure, and may Hashem continue to bless you and be very much liak in, in all the work you're doing and continue to transform and empower Kla Yisrael. Amen. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. 
To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.